This is Paula Morell, and welcome to Tales from the South, presented by bourbonandboots.com. How's everybody doing tonight? All right, well, welcome to Tales from the South, where Southerners bring their own true stories to life. We are live from Rocktown Distillery in in Little Rock, Arkansas, the first legal distillery in Arkansas since Prohibition. Tales from the South is presented by Southern lifestyle brand, bourbonandboots.com. All right, are y'all ready for some Southern style storytelling? Kevin Delaney is the director of visitor experience at the Museum of Discovery in Little Rock, Arkansas. When he's not entertaining Jimmy Fallon with his science antics on The Tonight Show, he's at the museum performing awesome science demonstrations for children and managing the Science After Dark program for adults. Tonight, Kevin takes us back to his boyhood and the one that got away, sort of, in Monster. Ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Delaney. Thanks, everybody. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I hope you enjoy this story. Uh, It's about something that I learned in a very, very roundabout, difficult way. It's a very simple lesson that was very complicated for me to learn. I believe in monsters. I believe in them because I saw one face to face. Now, I didn't grow up in the South, but I've spent a lot of time here. My brother and I spent a lot of summers when we were kids down on the crystal coast of North Carolina. We would ride our bikes to the aquarium and stare slack-jawed at all of our favorite sea creatures. And we learned about the thriving ecosystems that existed right along the very shore of our own rented stilt house. Now, one week, sometime in the 80s, we were sort of playing in a tide pool, and we caught a small squid about the size of a racquetball. So we took it in a net, and we took it back to the house, and we put it in a spackle bucket, five-gallon spackle bucket filled with seawater and a little bit of kelp. We'd sit and stare into the bucket, watching the squid dart back and forth, clearly stressed, and angrily inking as much as its three hearts would possibly allow. I ran a few tests, one to see if it would eat cooked shrimp, it wouldn't, and one to see if it would attack a small plastic submarine, it didn't. In fact, in a surprising twist on that classic scenario, the squid was absolutely terrified of the submarine. After a couple of days, fascinated and thoroughly satisfied that we had done some decent and important cephalopod research, we released the traumatized blob into the ocean where it was likely eaten by something almost immediately. (laughs) Now, my interest in aquatic creatures was never really limited by the constraints of reality. So I was very interested in any updates regarding the Loch Ness Monster, Champ of Lake Champlain up in Vermont, and of course, Chessie in Maryland, who I would always spare a moment to think of when we were passing through the Chesapeake Bay Tunnel on the way to North Carolina. 
I always imagined that Chessie was just on the other side of the tunnel, swimming around us as big as life. I thought he might be following our minivan because maybe he could sense that there was someone in that van who believed in him. And I did. I did believe. And not because I, I realistically thought that there was some sort of plesiosaur that was held over from the late Cretaceous period terrorizing crab fishermen or anything like that, but because I wanted so badly to live in a world where there are still mysteries to be solved and there were still enormous magical things waiting to be discovered. I just wanted desperately to believe in something bigger than soccer or math. So a year or two after that squid week, my parents gathered us around the kitchen table in our house in New Jersey and told us we weren't going to be able to go to North Carolina that summer because of work and because of money and family commitments and all of the other sad realities that keep families uh, from going someplace nice in the summertime. The good news, they said, was that I was going to get to go to Boy Scout camp with my brother and father in Cuddybackville, New York. Great, great news. <laughs> Despite enjoying the outdoors very much, I grew up in the woods of northern New Jersey, and uh, despite having a budding interest in setting fires and pocket knives and stuff like that, uh, I was less than excited about this idea. I was younger than most of the other scouts in our troop and generally a very nervous person. My brother was quick to offer encouragement. It's fun, he said, sounding as though he'd been either paid or threatened into doing so. There's an archery range and a waterfront, and the rifle range director only has four fingers, so when he salutes, he just has to tuck his thumb up like he's making a four. No one can tell which one he's missing. As promising as all that sounded, I was still feeling a little apprehensive when we got to camp. The long gravel road through the gate was flanked by thick groves of oak and evergreen trees, and we pulled up behind the mess hall to check in and get our site assignments. As I began wandering around looking at the trading post and information bulletin board, I overheard a group of scouts from another troop having some kind of argument. I freaking saw it, okay? Ask Alex. He was in my canoe. A goblin-faced, red-haired boy was turning magenta as he furiously defended himself to two other brown-haired scouts. We were paddling across the lake for the wilderness survival outpost, and it swam under the boat. Ask Alex. One of the other boys turned to a skim-milked, skinned, blonde-haired kid who looked like he was about to puke. Alex, did you see anything? Asked one of the brown-haired boys. I heard a splash. God damn it, Alex! <laughs> the goblin kid was absolutely red by this point, and I was thankful that the first aid building was just up the hill, because I hadn't gotten that marriage badge yet, and I was legitimately worried this kid was going to pass out. The other boys continued to cast doubt on the goblin kid's claim that he had seen whatever it was he was claiming to have seen, and Alex's color did not improve. My dad called us over to begin the long walk to our campsite. Now, directly leaving the dining hall, which was a generous name for this huge blue tarpaulin tented over rows of picnic tables where we all gathered for meals, was the path down to the waterfront. About a quarter mile, and most of the camping sites were down trails stemming off of this one main quarter mile path, which was smooth but unlit. And so as we were walking, I started stepping in time with my brother because by this point, I had some questions. So I heard a couple of guys talking about something in the lake. Do you know anything about that? 
My brother smiled and grabbed his backpack straps. Well, he said, it's either the snapping turtle or the lake monster. I felt electric waves fire from my brain down into my fingertips. The what? The what? The, the, the lake monster? Yeah, Rob Hopper said he saw it once. He said it surfaced over by the island of venomous snakes. My brother looked down at the ground and he coughed, getting winded from the walk. Yeah, but what is it exactly, I asked. My brother shrugged. It's a monster. Now, Rob Hopper was this kid from my brother's soccer team who was a year or two older than he was. He was real tall and skinny and looked kind of like a bird. He worked at the waterfront, but he was also dating the first aid officer, Lori, who was the only girl who worked at camp. So he spent a lot of time at the first aid building. Two days after we arrived, I stepped on a bee and went to first aid to visit Rob, who was hanging out there. I asked him about the lake monster, and he confirmed that he had seen it, kind of swimming in front of the island of venomous snakes. He said he couldn't tell what it was. He just knew that whatever it was, it was huge. Now, the island of venomous snakes was on the western side of the lake across from the wilderness survival outpost, where the goblin kid said he had seen it. Now, unfortunately, I was not yet at a rank high enough to take the wilderness survival merit badge course, so I decided to get my rowing merit badge instead. At least that way, I could, you know, cover some ground or water, as it were. So I asked other scouts if they'd been able to see the monster, and nobody said they did. They only all said that they knew somebody who said they had seen it. One kid said he saw it rise up out of the lake and swallow two, swallow two tenderfoots and a weebelow, who was somebody's little brother. <laughs> Clearly a false report, but I made a note in a lightly penciled question mark anyway. The case was beginning to go cold. I had seen turtles, bees, mammals, lizards, and even heard a timber rattler one night on the trail when nobody had a flashlight. But by the end of the camp, no lake monster. Now, the final night bonfire was the biggest event of the camp week. Each troop prepared skits about life at scout camp, and songs were sung, and awards and badges were handed out, and eventually the fire was extinguished, leaving only a pile of smoldering ashes and that incredible scent of a good campfire that takes days to wash out of your jacket. I woke up early the next morning and decided to go down to the waterfront for one last look at the lake. I walked a quarter mile through the thick groves of trees past the still smoking fire pit and all of the other campsites. And just as I was about to round the corner that opened up to the waterfront, I heard a splashing sound through the trees and a loud piercing whistle. Out of the water, everybody out of the water. Rob Hopper was blowing his whistle and waving a group of kids playing volleyball in the shallow area away from the lake and onto the beach. I heard another splash and then I saw it six feet long if it was a foot, shimmering and huge, thrashing its forked tail around in the water, enormous barbels waving out of the side of its chin, its gaping maw stretching wider and wider, trying to take a bite out of a volleyball. Rob blew his whistle again and made a few splashes to frighten the monster away as he grabbed the volleyball, rolling it with his fingertips across the surface of the water, and I saw as the monster swam away into the depths of the lake. Now, I believed at that moment 
that that monster swam into that beginner's swim area to prove something to me. That there are still mysteries to be discovered and there are still unbelievable creatures in the world. And with all of the hurt and with all of the frustration and the injustices that people feel every single day, is it really that silly to believe in a little bit of magic? Maybe so. But when I saw that monster, I knew that I could take comfort in at least one truth. There was a big damn catfish in that lake. <laughs> now I went home that summer with a new appreciation for the catfish as a species. I thought about trying to catch one myself and then learned that catfish feed nocturnally and the best time to try to fish for them is in the middle of the night and the center of the lake and I was a bit less enthusiastic about the idea after I learned that. <laughs> the hesitation was doubled when I became familiar with the practice of noodling. That is catching a catfish with your bare hands by thrusting your fist into a catfish hole and hoping a fish latches onto your arm and yanking it out and getting it to release from your arm somehow. Now, as recently as 2002, this practice was only legal in 11 states, and Arkansas is one of them. <laughs> Bearing in mind that several species of catfish are, are venomous, noodling is a risky sport. I continued to do research, and I became fascinated by all different types of catfish that lived all over the world, from the Pylodoctus olivaris that was being hoisted out of lakes and rivers throughout the South in America, to the critically endangered giants of the Mekong River who weigh up to an astonishing 660 pounds and nine feet long. These are enormous animals. Or the channel catfish of the Catskill Mountains in New York, burrowing under muddy tunnels beneath the lakes and rivers and scaring Boy Scouts. <laughs> they have always reminded me to remember to believe in a little bit of magic. I love catfish, I think they're fascinating animals. But of all the types that I've seen and learned about since that first summer, there's one that surprised me more than any other. About four years ago, right after we had moved to Arkansas, my wife, who was at that time my fiance and I, were driving back from Florida where we were visiting my brother. Uh, we got to Mississippi and we were hungry and we decided to stop somewhere. And I saw a sign for Cracker Barrel and suggested we stop there because I had never been there before and uh, because I was a lifelong fan of Cracker Barrel cheese and assumed the restaurant and the cheese were somehow connected. It's a logical thought, I think. My wife gently informed me that the only connection between the two was a lawsuit over the font. And even though she doesn't ever want to go to Cracker Barrel with anybody, she took pity on my ignorance, and we stopped for dinner. We walked into the Cracker Barrel, and I heard bluegrass playing, and I immediately was charmed completely. We tested handmade rocking chairs and looked at all the kitschy gifts and stuff, and eventually we sat down at our table to order. And I opened up the menu, and my eyes immediately fell to a dish under the country dinner plates, U.S. farm-raised catfish. Oh boy. I knew I had to order. It was like a cosmic signal that I had been on the right path. <laughs> the validation of the hope that carried me 
to a mystery and a monster and a quest and a dream. And now this new adventure going to Arkansas. Now, I was so honored at the opportunity to eat this delicious noble beast that when my plate was put in front of me, I looked down and I closed my eyes and I took a bite. And then I almost gagged because of how terrible it tasted. You see, I had ordered spicy grilled catfish instead of fried catfish, thinking that it would be a healthier option, not realizing that grilled catfish sort of tastes like a catfish that ate a bunch of mud and a rotten crawfish and then somehow vomited inside its own mouth. So coming from the tri-state area and the beautiful Catskill Mountains and discovering that there are monsters still to be found in our world. I came all the way to Mississippi and Arkansas and the beautiful American South to learn a very simple lesson. If you're going to eat a sea monster, get it deep fried. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Kevin Delaney, for being on Tales from the South, presented by BourbonInnovates.com. Thank you so much for having me. You guys are awesome. Now, you start your story with the tale of the research project. Yes, yes. Uh, with the squid and a five-gallon bucket on the porch. Right. Do you have any other stories from your boyhood of, with curiosity that turned into research projects? Uh, even a little further than that, um, my brother and I, uh, my brother is today a marine biologist, so he, he continued on that path also. Um, but uh, um, we were never ones to shy away from having dangerous pets. But I think my brother kind of, we had piranhas, you know, and uh, we had an iguana, a giant green iguana, which makes a nice pet. But my brother kind of, sort of took that to a next level when he found out that he could buy an alligator at a reptile dealer in Pennsylvania. So we brought home an alligator and we kept a pet alligator in our home for many, many years, which I don't recommend. <laughs> They're not very sweet. It's not, they, they don't snuggle with you. They just hiss a lot, pretty much. And so uh, you mentioned noodling in your story, yes. which I am assuming you've still not tried. I've still not tried noodling, no. And so what about fishing? Have you gone fishing um, either for catfish or other fish here in Arkansas? Not in Arkansas, no. But when I was a kid, we used to fish a lot. Um, my grandfather had a pond near his house, and my brother and I would fish a lot. And it was my grandpa who I asked about catfishing, because they, cat, they were smaller catfish in, in uh, their pond. But he, he was the one who said, well, yes, absolutely. Let's go in the middle of the night. We'll, you know, we'll row out to the middle of the lake, and we'll just sit there, and you'll see when we'll try to... And so I think he was trying to discourage me from making him go out catfishing in the middle of the night. So I still haven't gotten to go catfishing yet. And so uh, your wife's family's from Arkansas, Yes, right? yeah, and my, my father-in-law is a fisherman, and he and his brothers go out trout fishing every year, but I haven't gone with them yet. Hmm. I haven't gotten there yet. Oh, okay. But we'll see. <laughs> 
Um, at the end of your story, you try grilled catfish. Yes. Which you quickly discover uh, was not such a great idea. It's an acquired taste. Yeah. It, yes. And so, have you um, have you had fried catfish? Absolutely, I love fried catfish. And, yeah. And so, was there a story about the first time you had fried catfish, or uh, mostly how relieved I was that it didn't taste like grilled catfish? <laughs> was was that? I, because we all know how delicious it is. So I said, oh my goodness, this is what I, this is it. This so is did it. anyone have to convince you to try their fried catfish? I was a little, just... I was a little nervous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so um, we have a few minutes here at the end for audience questions. And so um, Kevin's going to be setting up some um, demonstration stuff over here. But if you have a question for him, um, uh, say, uh, raise your hand and then ask your question, and I'll repeat it on the mic so that we can capture it for the radio. So if you'll raise your hand, you can ask him about anything that you'd like. So the question is, how did you uh, get uh, the attention of The Tonight Show, and how did they first contact you? Uh, well, that's a little bit of a mystery, too. Um, the Museum of Discovery, uh, uh, this is really how it happened. The Museum of Discovery was lucky enough to be named on Mensa Magazine's top 10 science museums in the country. We were number six, I think. And at the time that uh, Jimmy Fallon was taking over The Tonight Show uh, slot, they had decided they wanted to add like a science demonstration element and so they were calling museums all over the place, and we were one of them. We, they, they saw us on the, on the, uh, the Mensa list, and they uh, watched a couple of videos that we put up for promoting Science After Dark and some awesome science demonstrations and things like that, and they asked if we'd be interested in, uh, in auditioning. And uh, we were, and it worked out. It was a lot of fun. So, so the, the short answer is they called one day. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's incredibly fast-paced and really a lot of fun. Everybody who uh, we work with there, they have a huge team of people to put that show together every day. And, uh, and so we all, we're all, it's like running with an egg, they say. And, and so, uh, but uh, it, I, I've said before that it's kind of like running through a desert for about a mile and then getting to cool off in a pool for about five minutes. Because that's what, because we work to kind of get everything uh, as, 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 timed as, as we want to and as predictable as we need it to be, which is sometimes a challenge when you're dealing with some of the reactions that we do. Um, but uh, there's a big team of people who help uh, make it happen, but it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Have you ever mistaken one of your science projects for one of your drinks? Uh, some of my science projects are drinks, so <laughs> I've managed to avoid that track. <laughs> As you'll see in a moment. <laughs> yep. Any failed projects on the Jimmy Fallon show that you might have missed? Any failed projects? Uh, not so much failed projects, but sort of like uh, left at the wayside for bigger and better uh, kind of things. But one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite demonstrations that uh, you'll all see at some point is uh, and and they're fond of it too is um, there's a there's a metal I don't know if you all are familiar with it it's called gallium uh, and it's a liquid metal it's a very soft metal it melts at around room temperature so if you hold it in your hand 
It'll smudge your hand kind of like a graphite pencil will. And so because this is such a, 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 an interesting material, we can mold it into things. And then when it cools off, it, it is a solid metal. And um, so the old trick that chemists used to do to kind of like mess with each other was to make spoons out of gallium and then sneak them in the drawers in the kitchen. So when another scientist would go and take a spoon to stir their coffee or tea, it would melt completely and disappear. And they wouldn't have a spoon anymore. And then they would all chuckle and go back to work, because that's what scientists do. Um, so that's something that uh, we, just a little spoon, it's, it's a very kind of simple demonstration. But we always have it sort of on hand just in case. Just in case. But we haven't used it yet. So I think we have time for one more question from the audience. Oh boy. So the question is, where did you end up, uh, I mean, how did you end up at the Museum of Discovery? What's okay, your background? Great. Uh, well, um, before I moved to Arkansas, um, uh, wh which I did because of my beautiful wife, who is here tonight, so thank you uh, to her for being awesome and bringing me here. I want nothing of this would have happened if it weren't for her. Um, but uh, so, um, what was the question? <laughs> uh, what's your background? How did oh, my you, background. Right, That's how right. you end up here? So I got sidetracked thinking about my wife. Um, so we were living in New England um, after college, and uh, I was working as a, a, a writing teacher. I taught uh, playwriting to, chill, to kids and adults. I did improv and uh, uh, comedy and uh, theater, and I was a director and stuff like that. So I studied theater in college and writing. And um, that pays as much as you think it does. So uh, I had to have a lot of uh, jobs. And one job that I took was to write education programs, theatrical programs for a zoo, the Roger Williams Park Zoo in Providence, Rhode Island, which is a beautiful zoo if you ever get up to that area. They're, they're doing some fantastic conservation work and really great facility. Uh, and so it was supposed to be a temporary job. And I ended up at the zoo for three and a half years. Um, working with the education department and uh, later the veterinary staff and the keeping staff to design uh, programming around animals and zoology and husbandry and ecology and that kind of thing. And so um, science, which had always uh, obviously been an interest of mine, my, being, my brother's a scientist, my uncle was a uh, geologist, my uh, grandfather was an engineer. Um, it was always kind of in the family, and so I was able to kind of blend my art background with my interest in science. And uh, when I got to uh, Little Rock, the Museum of Discovery was here and uh, was about to reopen after their fantastic uh, remodeling from a few years ago. And so uh, I was able to join the staff, and I've been there ever since. Yeah. Thank you. So thank you so much, Kevin Delaney, for being on Tales from the South, presented by Bourbon and Boots. Tales from the South is presented by Southern Lifestyle Brand, bourbonandboots.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Stitcher Smart Radio, and you can download and listen to our podcast on our website. More can be found at talesfromthesouth.com. Have a great night, and we'll see you next time for another edition of Bourbon and Boots Tales. Look me up when you come into town.